now for your feature presentation. One, or two, or three, or four, but five, or five. What's up, listeners? I'm your host, ex-video store clerk, screenwriter, and fellow listener, Jason Kleberg, and this is Force 5, a show where I force my guests to come up with a movie-themed top five list topic, and then we reveal our picks on air. There's something about watching a movie with a movie theater scene in it that's so comforting for me, whether the scene itself is trying to portray that or not. Maybe it's because I've spent so much time in theaters over the course of my life, but any time I walk into a theater, it gives me this kind of warmth that I'm sure religious people get when they walk into a church. Like, I just belong there. Throughout my life, I've been to hundreds of theaters across the United States and in other countries like Mexico, and I can't help but take in the sights, sounds, and smells whenever I walk into a new one, and seeing a theater in a film does a similar thing to me. What's on the marquee? What are the snack prices? Is the crowd enjoying the film, and what film is it? Critic and composer Brian Scuttle joined me this week to talk about our favorite movie theater scenes in film. I hope you have as much fun thinking about what would be on your list as we did discussing ours. Welcome back to the Force 5 podcast. Tonight I am joined by film critic and composer Brian Scuttle. Brian, welcome to Force 5. It's been a long time coming. It really has. Um, you know, and I I I will admit it's like I I've, I've been excited to uh be on this podcast and especially to talk about this particular subject um yeah we'll we'll get into it as we go along but i mean you know it's a subject that actually that has 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 a lot of special meaning for me in particular awesome well well let's get into that a bit but uh, first i want to start with sonic cinema because uh i think that really talks a lot about who you are and and why you're here it kind of melds your two passions together which are uh well i'll let i'll let you get into that for those unfamiliar with sonic cinema what is it all about it was initially intended to be a hub for like you said my two great passions which were composing music as well as writing film reviews and i the two really have been hand in hand uh almost almost since the beginning um I had wanted, I'd studied music in uh, college and in particular was interested in being a, being a film composer. That was my dream in uh, college. And I was majoring in sound recording. So, I mean, you know, are the reason why I've done some of the audio things as far as podcasts, as far as fan commentaries and stuff like that over the years that's that's where that came from um but yeah so song cinema has really been a uh and in i i first had the ideas for around 2000 or so but wasn't until like 2003 so about 20 years ago that really started to get going as far as working towards putting it into uh practice and uh, 2004, the re- first reviews started to go up. In 2005, audio started to go up. And it's basically just been a uh, journey from there. And, um, you know, I've over the years, uh, inspired by uh, the late great Roger Ebert, who had the idea of people doing fan commentaries for movies that they either had a lot to say from a level of personal experience or just wanted to 
shoot the shit with. And um, so some friends of mine, I had the idea of doing fan commentaries. And then um, by 2015, I decided to get into podcasting. Because, A, you're not relying on having to sync it to the film. And you can also delve into so many different topics than you can on a commentary. And the Sonic Cinema podcast has been going strong. And we focus more often than non-film history. But we do uh, festival coverage and uh, also filmmaker interviews, and we do touch on some recent films as well. So it's a nice little grab bag of uh, topics. As a composer, I'm sure you admire a lot of films scores. What are some of your favorite scores? I know I didn't prep you with that question, but just off the top. Favorite scores. Uh, my my favorite soundtrack of all time is the, uh, the Crow, both the song soundtrack as well as the original score. Uh, Vertigo, 2001, Space Odyssey, Braveheart, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, I, Broken Arrow, the John Woo film. It, it uh, The list goes on and on. We could have this discussion another day and I could list five to ten more <laughs> and it would be completely different. Broken Arrow, that's an inspired choice. That's Zimmer, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I love him too. You've done a lot of reviews and, and stuff like that. What got you into film criticism? Was it Ebert? Ebert, starting to read more about films as I started to get deeper and deeper into films and starting to read film criticism like Ebert, like Lauren Malton, his uh, big book, his big movie guide that came out for several years. I mean, that was a big part of it, but honestly, a big part. It was more about me wanting to share my personal thoughts. And so um, the paper, the Atlanta paper at the time had like a UV the critic section where it's like where uh, regular people could write their thoughts on movies. And so I started to do that and I started to get published. And as I got more and more into films, I started to write more and more. And so my uh, mother and I, at one point, we had this idea for our own kind movie guide, but it was more personal. It was going to be more the movies that we love. And, um, you know, that is, that's an idea that I still have bouncing around, uh, but was basically be just for me. And um, so 1999, I started to shared these reviews that I was writing with friends over email. And that basically grew into uh, kind, of, kind of a basic rhythm of how I, you know, I would cover the summer movie season, like what movies I'm looking forward to, do my top 10 list, talk about the Oscars and all that stuff. And I mean, in those emails kind of is the, if it is for the variety of uh, what Sonic Cinema would become, really, in a big way. And some of those reviews you can read online at Sonic Cinema. Some you can't because I'm, I either rewrote, I did new reviews for those movies, or I just uh, have more I wanted to say about them, or I just... Uh, 
updated them, but regardless, I mean, that's basically where my interest in film criticism came from. And I mean, you know, it was the, uh, it was also late 90s, early 2000s. So, uh, film culture online was also a big part of the inspiration in places like Anical News, like Joe Glow, and, uh, you know, more and more people were sharing their thoughts online. So, that's 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 basically where that came from. Joe Blow, that's a name from the past. I haven't been to that website in a long time. <laughs> yeah, I know. So uh, just to give my listeners kind of a, an insight into your taste, what are some of your favorite films of all time? Man, I mean, you know, I, I think it's your going all time. Uh, there, there are a number that come to mind. I, I think my my two favorite films of all time, uh, you know, I mean, they're, they're so close. They might as well be 1A and 1B. Are uh, Buster Keaton, Sherlock Jr., and The Crow. Uh, the Crow was one I, I've talked about it on other podcasts. The Crow was a movie where my appreciation for movies stopped being just about entertainment, more about the art of filmmaking in general and how visuals work with music and how storytelling works in somewhat dark settings and that was that was a real lighting moment. Um I I adore uh Martin Scorsese's Hugo. I love that film. I you know I I'm I'm I will always be a Star Wars fan. Uh you know it's it's hard to be a Star Wars fan online sometimes because there are some people who are just obnoxious about but I I will always be a Star Wars fan uh for better or worse. And um, a few other films that I love that are kind of smaller films that people may not necessarily be aware of is a film called The Whole Wide World, which as Vincent D'Onofrio and Renee Zellweger was one of her first movies, uh, was right before Jerry Maguire, actually. And then uh, Richard Linklater's Waking Life, which is a wonderful animated kaleidoscope of ideas and images the whole wide world i have not heard of that one i'll have to look that one up it is to be um that's that's a that's a good place to put it it's a it it's it looks at a portion of the life of uh robert e e howard the career of conan the barbarian Hmm. and um his relationship with a texas school teacher which is the character that renee zellweger plays and it's 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 always been a lovely, lovely favor of mine. All right, I'm putting on my list right now as we speak, <laughs> as we live and breathe. All right, for today's topic, you chose top five movie theater scenes. It's a great topic that, honestly, I'm surprised nobody has has brought up before. What inspired this topic for you? Well, it's funny because of the fact that I I actually was at work, uh, and I thought about this idea. And um, so... The reason the main the main inspiration for this was for uh the past the better part of twenty five years, uh I worked in movie theaters. Um I worked a couple of summers uh at one movie theater and then starting in November twenty two thousand one through this past August, I worked for Regal. And I worked, started off as an employee, then moved to management. I've basically been a manager for 
had been a manager for the past 20 years. Um, I do still work in movie theaters, but now I am a service tech uh, working on movie projectors. So oh, cool. my, my appreciate, so my, and projection was where I really started to love my job. Uh, I did get a chance to be a projectionist during the transition from 35 millimeter to digital. And that was always, that was a fascinating time to see the, uh, see the industry change. And, um, I had opportunity to, uh, basically go back to projection, uh, in a way. And that's, that's, that's what, uh, that's what inspired the move. And I'm, uh, been doing that for a few months now. And it's really, it's been a learning experience because I'm learning so much more about projection, movie projection than in projectors than I even did in 20 years as a manager but it does still keep me in the industry that I've been a part of for 25 years now. And, but the, the part that I love the most and that's, and so I was, I was actually uh, at a movie theater and I started to think about it and started to think about uh, my time at movie theaters. And I thought, Oh, well that would be a great topic for this discussion because you and I had started to talk about um, me being on the show and I had been struggling with a topic to come up with. And then I had this idea, Oh, well, movie theater scenes. And so that was, that was that that's where the inspiration for this idea came from. Do you have any memorable experiences at the theater yourself? I have a, I have a, great number of experiences um you know and i'll i'll there there are more that i can certainly talk about you know one of the ones that i remember the most was i i actually so myself and my now wife of eight years uh we actually got hired around the same time and so we were hired specifically for the release of the first Harry Potter film. And oh. I I remember being back behind concession opening day of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. And I was basically told by my managers, it's like, okay, this popper cannot run out of popcorn. You need to make sure there's popcorn going <laughs> and popcorn in there at all times. I just basically kept my focus on the popper. I was not looking behind me to see the massive line. And, uh, yeah, so it was, but whenever I would go peak, it's like, oh my goodness gracious. Um, cause I never see it. It's funny because of the fact that I'd worked in concession before, but, uh, the theater I worked at in college didn't seem to be quite as busy as the one that I started working at Regal. And I mean, it, it was a few more theaters and this is, this is more and more the era of the multiplex. And so, and studios basically putting as many, uh, as many prints of a movie into theaters as possible. So that was, that was a, uh, that was a pretty significant formative moment. Um, 
Let's see. Uh, there was the time I was I was not quite Mandarin yet, and um, I was in box office at this point. It was opening night of uh, X Men Two, and the we had power outage, and so that and obviously because of the nature of the industry, that's not a good thing because it basically means. All the movies stop. Everybody goes crazy. Uh, and we we basically told everybody, it's like, uh, look, just, you know, hold on to your ticket stub. You can use it another day. If you want to stay that until we get the movie on screen, that's fine. If not, we'll honor the tickets. And I remember seeing, we kept seeing those uh, ticket stubs for a good year or two. Um, after that day, and it's like it was it was obvious because of the fact that we had changed the ticket stock at the time and uh and so um it was it was just absolutely terrific and uh you know it when while I was in projection when I became a manager, it's like one of the benefits at the time was being able to quality screen prints make sure the movie was built correctly. So I got a chance to watch stuff like Finding Nemo, like Star Wars Revenge of the Sith, and uh, King Kong, the Peter Jackson one, and a, a bunch of movies early. And it was just absolutely a uh, wonder. It was a, absolutely a wonderful experience. And sometimes we would make kind of an, our own event from it uh you know and some of us would if we only had like one movie to watch like we would all get into one one movie and we would watch it together and it was it was one of those experiences that was just absolutely uh absolutely wonderful yeah sounds awesome yeah and uh it, it just made me think about all my really great theater experiences too but um you know, we got to talk about some movie theater scenes. So, Brian Scuttle, are you ready to get into today's list? I am. You know what's going to happen? You know what's happening to you right now? Huh? You know what's going to happen? What? You just made the list. How many crossover picks do you think we'll have? Do you think we'll have any uh, of the same picks? I, I'm sure we'll probably have a few because there are, I do think there are some that stand out where it's like, oh yeah, you gotta have that on. Yeah. And um I I, I, I think there will probably be a handful that are like that. So I'm gonna say two. I, I did leave one off of my list because I've spoken about it on here specifically that scene before for a different list. So I left that one off. But uh looking at my list, I think I've got four on mine that uh well three three that I've never been brought up on a list before at all so this should be fun uh you're the guest so i'm gonna leave it up to you do you want to go first or do you want me to go first um i i i would uh i i will see to you first all right um for my number five i went with i guess a little bit of a deep cut here this is a film that i don't know that a lot of people will have heard of and certainly a lot of people probably haven't seen it but i'm gonna Hope to sway you to checking it out. And it's a 2003 film called Goodbye Dragon Inn.
This is written and directed by Sai Ming Liang, and really the entire film takes place in and around this Taiwanese theater as it shows its final film, a screening of the 1967 wuxia film Dragon Inn, before the theater closes its doors forever. And um, so I went back and I rewatched this, and there are two scenes that I want to talk about. Um, first, the opening shot of the film, which takes us back into the past to the 60s, and, it, and it's in the theater, and it's just, the theater is beautiful, it's a packed house, people are excited to be there, not an empty seat to be had, um, everybody's enjoying themselves, and then within a frame, it snaps to the present, and the theater's really empty, it looks a little bit run down, there's only a couple people in the theater, and some of them are not even sitting in their seats, only a few are even paying attention to the film, and it's just this stark reminder that the cinema experience today isn't what it used to be. And near the end of the film, we watch one moviegoer who has been paying attention the whole time. And it turns out that he was an actor in that movie, the dra in, in that movie Dragon Inn. And he sits there with just tears in his eyes as the film comes to a close for the very last time. And as he gets up, he runs into another actor from the film who was also there to show the movie to his grandson. And it ends on this note of hope that stories shared by generations can never really be lost. Uh, it's a really slow, contemplative film. But if you're a movie lover, and I think anybody listening to this show would consider themselves one, I, I, it's worth your time. In his prior film, What Time Is It There?, Sai set a scene in the old Fuho Theater at the edge of Taipei. It reminded him of these films of his youth. So he, sh he shot a scene in the theater, and he premiered his film there. And then after the premiere, he approached the owner to, to shoot this film there. And uh, he did so fearing that it was going to be closed forever soon. So this is kind of like his ode to cinema. The entire thing, like I said, takes place in the theater. But um, those two scenes really struck me as pretty amazing because it, the theater, you worked in theaters for a long, long time. And you probably understand better than anybody that the theater experience, even from like the early 2000s, is totally different than it is today. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And um, I'll be honest, I had never heard of this movie, but now that you mentioned it, I absolutely want to see it. Um, you know, because of the fact that that sounds like such, it sounds like such a beautiful experience. It, it almost sounds like the same type of experience that uh, another one that we might be talking about. I don't know what your list is, but uh, it's one of the movies that a lot of people point to as being a great ode to the love of movies. And uh, it's in the movie I'm talking about is Cinema Paradiso. Yeah. And uh, there there's there's just some wonderful, uh, beautiful moments that really hearken to the love of the theater experience. And yeah, you're you're right. It's just not the same now. I mean, even even in the. Uh, you know, I mean, even in 2000. Even in the early 2000s, it feels like it's drastically different than it was in the 90s. Sure. And, I mean, it's it's just absolutely wild. With so many people who really wait for screening now, or streaming now, as far as waiting for movies, it it's hard to capture that type of experience that I remember, you know, even watching something like, uh, the Fan Menace for the first time, or 
Fellowship of the Ring or the Blair Witch Project for the first time. And, uh, you know, it's just not the same. It's just not the same experience in any way, shape or form. Brian, number five for you. So my number five is uh, one that I thought about it. it. It's it's not set inside the movie theater auditorium, but it's got one of my absolute favorite moments in a in an actual movie theater, and it is uh, Terry Zweigoff's uh, Ghost World from two thousand one. And uh, you know, it's it at that point Thor Birch's character is uh, trying to find a job to make money so she can move out her dad's house and get a uh, get an apartment with her best friend played by Scarlett Johansson and one of the movie and one of the uh, jobs she gets is a movie theater employee and she only worked last one day because she's <laughs> basically a dick to the customers. Do you serve beer? Any alcohol? I wish. Actually, you wish. After about five minutes of this movie, you're gonna wish you had ten beers. What are you doing? You don't ever criticize the feature. Why? What's the difference? I mean, we already got his money. <laughs> Look, that's the policy, okay? If you want to make up your own rules, open up your own theater. Hi. Uh, can I get a medium seven up? Medium? Why, sir? Do you not know that for a mere 25 cents more, you could purchase a large beverage? And you know, I'm only telling you this because we're such good friends. Medium is really only for suckers who don't know the concept of value. And, uh, you know, as somebody, and this was, is funny because that came out, I saw it before I started for working for Regal, but I had enough experience in the theater industry to know that I I appreciated that level of humor when it came to the idea of being able to call out these really obnoxious customers that you might come across in in uh in 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 the job at, from time to time. All right, Ghost World from 2001. I, I'm going to be honest, I have not seen Ghost World, so I guess I need to check this out. Yeah, it's so good. I know it's part of the Criterion Collection. Uh, I think it is on Tubi, actually, uh, which is how I watched rewatched it in preparation for this. Because I hadn't seen it in a while, and I wanted to be able to, uh, I wanted to be able to say clearly, like the scenes. I forgot how little that takes place in a movie theater, but uh, that that scene in particular is just absolutely wonderful. All right, that's uh, it's got a great cast. I've always, it's always been on my radar. It's just never been something that I've that I picked up. Even when I was working at the video store, I remember the cover. I, I saw it a million mm-hmm. times. I just never rented it. Well, my number four is going back into the theater. And when you talk about whiplash on this show, this is as about as far as you can get from my number five, which was a slow contemplative movie, uh, very very little action going on whereas my number four here is one of the uh crazier 80s movies it is uh the blob and i'm going with the 1988 version i'm not going i'm going with the remake i'm not going with the original and i'll explain why in a second if it had a mind you could reason with it if it had a body 
you could shoot it. If it had a heart, you could kill it. Now, man is no longer the supreme being on this planet. The organism is growing at a geometric rate. By all accounts, it's at least a thousand times its original mass. This one is directed by Chuck Russell, written by Theodore Simonson, uh, Kay Linkater, and Irvine H. Milgate. If you've never seen The Blob, it's about this deadly entity from space that crash lands near a small town and starts eating everyone in its path, and panic just ensues. It's amazing. Um, now, in both the Blob films, including 1958 and this one from 88, there are pretty effective movie theater scenes that kick off the Blob's existence to the town. <laughs> and they both start with the Blob in the projection booth, pushing its way through the grates, and then it consumes the projectionist as he's about to change the reel. And so people look up because the movie stops. They look up towards the booth and they see the horror that's about to consume them. And in both films, there's a stampede as people try to get out of the theater. But the reason that I chose the 88 version over 58 is because in 58 you don't get to see the blob's reign of terror inside the theater you get one of the corniest sounding lines from a police officer who runs in and then runs back out and he just woodenly says don't go in there jim it won't do any good it's the most horrible thing i've ever seen in my life um <laughs> it's so corny but in the 1988 version, Meg, learning that her brother Kevin and his friend have snuck into the theater, she runs into the theater against the grain as people are stampeding out. And there we get to see what the blob is doing and uh, what he's feeding on, and it is not popcorn. There's a woman who she turns over because she thinks she might be still alive, and her face is half-melted. It's one of those scenes that has always stuck with me since I saw it originally. And then when she finds her brother and his friend, it's a race to get out of the theater with the blob right behind them. It's a really great, really suspenseful scene with him getting his jacket caught in the door as they're trying to get out of there. If you've never seen The Blob, it is so much fun. It's such a gooey B-movie uh, where nobody is safe. You become attached to characters and they are killed off. It's really well crafted and the effects are mostly practically done so that it still today it's going to hold up really well. Uh, Shout Factory put out a Blu-ray of this. I don't know if there's a 4K of it yet, but I know they have a Blu-ray of it, and uh, it's just a, it's packed with extras. I highly recommend The Blob. But when you said theater scenes, this was one of the first ones that came to my mind. Yeah, I, I don't remember if I've seen. I don't remember if I've seen the 1988 one. I know I I actually just rewatched the uh, 58 one um, mm -hmm. this past October. And, you know, it's enjoyable. It's goofy. Uh, yeah, I, I do agree with you that that uh, movie theater scene is starts off so well and that I, I enjoy it, but it is kind of anticlimactic, the fact that you don't really get to see much of it in the theater. And, I mean, you know, you it, it makes sense because there's only so much you can really do in the 50s with that type of special effect. Um but at the same time, I mean, no, I, I think that is a, it, it's, it, it's good that we're at least recognizing the greatness of a good, scary movie scene where being in a theater is not necessarily good. And <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I, I love that. I highly recommend it. I, I you got to watch it, especially, you know, if having just seen the 58 version, watch the 88 version. It's, it's just so much fun. Yeah. 
All right, Brian, number four for you. Number four for me is actually going to be a bit of a recent one. Uh, it is uh, Steven Spielberg's The Fablements. Movies are dreams. That you never forget. Sammy? how everything looks it's hard to find our house ours is the dark house with no lights in this family it's the scientists versus the artists sammy's on my team takes after me and it's one scene in particular that i just absolutely love it's after the move to arizona and Sammy Fableman is in Boy Scouts, and he and his friends are going to the movies, and his friends are dogging them about a girl they like. And they're going to see uh, John Ford's The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. And the reason I chose this one is that it really shows the laser focus that Sammy has on film at this point it's grabbed a hold of them in a way that it it grabs a hold of a lot of us who talk about film on podcasts or movie reviews or however we however we talk about movies and i i love it because of the fact that when everybody's seating in the movie like sammy is laser focused on the screen and he wants to watch the movie and everybody else just wants to talk about the girl. And so he he there's this one moment where Sammy basically jumps over the seats to sit apart from his friends because it's like, I I don't care what you're talking about. I just want to watch the movie. And it's <laughs> it's absolutely I, I think it gets to that obsessive love of somebody who wants to take in film in as is such a profound experience that can be and it's it's it it's something that uh and and to basically crowd out all the noise that can happen in movie theaters that's i think that's part of the reason why i really love it just the description uh definitely has me intrigued it uh is certainly relatable i have not seen the fablemans yet either oh so so good it's 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 honestly become one of my favorite Spielberg movies. It's really you you can get the personal aspect of it, and it it really it it's I mean it's very autobiographical about Steve Spielberg, and it but in a way that is really engaging and entertaining as well as very emotional, and uh, it's 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 really a wonderful film. My number three here is taking me back to my childhood as the Fablemans took Spielberg back to his. This is one that, man, I if I was to say we were going to match up on one, this is where I think we would match up. So we'll see if, it's, if this one's on your list. This is a movie directed by John McTiernan called Last Action Hero from 1993. On June 18th, this is a magic ticket. Get ready. 
to be transported out of the audience and into the action. Holy cow! I'm in the movie! Who the hell are you? I'm Danny Madigan. I'm a kid. This summer, Arnold Schwarzenegger is Jack Slater. Jack! Everybody down! And Jack Slater is the last action hero. The big ticket for 93. This was written by probably like a hundred people. <laughs> it was uh, knocked around Hollywood and there were so many different writers on it. I think it's officially credited to Shane Black and David Arnott, but there are so many writers on this thing. Uh, it focuses on this young kid named Danny Madigan. He's 10 years old. He's a huge fan of Jack Slater, who's this larger than life movie action hero played by Arnold Schwarzenegger. And his best friend, Nick, who is this projectionist at this theater, gives him a magic ticket to the newest Jack Slater movie. And Danny is transported into Slater's world, his number one hero where the good guys always win. Now, of course, this is a dream come true for Danny, but things take a turn for the worst when one of Slater's enemies, Benedict the Hitman, gets a hold of the ticket and ends up in the real world. So Slater and Danny must join forces, travel back to the real world and stop him. The scene I'm referring to is the opening scene. Danny's this, like I said, he's a 10-year-old kid. He lives with his mom because his dad died, and he finds comfort in watching movies at this 42nd Street Theater. And uh, Nick just kind of lets him in during the day and lets him see stuff he probably shouldn't be seeing. During the opening credit sequence of Jack Slater 4, he's, he's in this theater all by himself getting like a sneak preview here. There's a big chase scene where Jack and a truck full of thugs are, are, are having a car chase. And the bad guys toss this cartoonish stick of dynamite towards Jack's convertible. And Schwarzenegger shoots back at the dynamite to redirect it with his Desert Eagle in a really like goofy scene. But instead of flying back into the bad guy's truck like you might expect, it bounces through the screen and into the aisle as a confused Danny looks at the dynamite and then it starts rolling towards him and he he doesn't know what's going on but he tries to put the wick out with his popcorn and that obviously doesn't work and when it explodes Danny is transported into the film universe I loved action movies as a kid so I really anything that Schwarzenegger was in I wanted to see this and now you have uh, the the real world and the movie world combining that was just heaven to me as a kid. This movie is infamous for being a bomb with uh, a lot of contributing factors. I, I think it was released like the week of or the week after Jurassic Park. It had bad test screenings. And John McTiernan said initially it was a wonderful Cinderella story with a nine-year-old boy. We had a pretty good script by Bill Goldman. It was charming, and then this ludicrous hype machine got a hold of it. It got buried under bullshit. It was so overwhelmed with baggage, and then it was whipped out, unedited, practically assembled right out of the camera. It was in the theater five or six weeks after I finished shooting. It was kamikaze's stupid, no good reason for it. And then to open the week after Jurassic Park. God, to get the depth of bad judgment involved in that, you'd need a snorkel. <laughs> End quote. Um, so he was pretty critical of that. But I, I still enjoy the movie. It's really weird. It's really wacky. And that opening scene just kind of kicks things off in that theater, just as you might expect in a movie like this. I'll be honest, I'm doing a rewatch for Last Action Hero. I have not seen it since theaters. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember enjoying it. And look, John Carpenter and uh, Ridley Scott can certainly understand McTiernan's pain when it comes to having their films uh, steamrolled by uh, Steven Spielberg. Because, uh, <laughs> obviously, famously, the thing in Blade Runner opened a couple weeks after E.T. And, uh, well, the the rest is going to 
history as far as the box office goes. Um, but uh, no, I mean, I the the idea of we will talk about um, we will talk further about the idea of the real world and the movie world uh, melding because it is on my list before a different film. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it's such an easy, it's such an, it's such a simple concept to do, yeah. but it's certainly not an easy one. And I, I think there are only a handful that have done relatively well with it. Uh, and, um, but yeah, it's, it's it's a it's an it's a simple concept to do, especially to comment on Hollywood and comment on filmmaking. But I yeah, I mean, I'm I'm doing rewatch for Last Action Hero. I think you'll really like it now, especially the alternate universe that is the world they live in. Like you'll pick up on things, especially with Sylvester Stallone, that you never would have picked up when you were a little kid watching it in theaters. It's it's a it's a really fun, really weird, wild movie. See Tappy Tibbins live. Author of the international bestseller The Juice and ATM, you've seen him on national television and now's your chance to see him live. This Monday at the Diners Club in Visalia, California. During this full day seminar, you'll learn about the three rules for a happy life used by the top business leaders, Olympic athletes, and people who used to steal a lot of food while working at the grocery store until they get fired. Thousands have benefited from the dynamic and powerful presentation style of Taffy Tibbins. Take action now and call 1-900-976-JUICE. This event will sell out. Call 1-900-976-JUICE. Now that was, again, a fake ad, but I do have an actual sponsor, Haya Health. Haya is a vitamin company made for kids, getting them essential super nutrients they need to be their best. I've mentioned this, I have a five-year-old, he's a real picky eater, so we use Haya to supplement what he's not getting. But they have probiotic and nighttime packages as well, and they're delivered straight to your door. No sugars, no dyes, no gummy additives. Head to HayaHealth.com and use my code in the show notes to receive 20% off of your first order. And uh, again, this is real. So 20% off your real order. Use the code in the show notes. If you've got kids, give these a look and get some money off by using my link. Uh, All right. Number, what are we at? Number three for you. So number three for me is, uh, it's kind of going to be a deep cut, but I mean, it gets to what I was talking about when it comes to Fablemans. And it is in in its own way, and it's uh, Terry Gilliam's 12 Monkeys. From director Terry Gilliam... Do you think you're living in the future? ...comes an extraordinary story. Many of you heard of the army, the 12 Monkeys. (laughs) Of the man who saw the future. Five billion people died in 1996. And tried to tell the world... I'm not crazy. Five billion people are gonna die! Bruce Willis, Madeline Stowe, and Brad Pitt. Do you realize where he comes from? 12 monkeys rated R now playing in select areas um there's a scene in the movie when uh Bruce Willis and Madeline Kahn are hiding in a movie theater and Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo is playing and you can te- see and hear in Willis's character in uh his character's voice you know he's he's basically talking about the feelings that he has when he's watching Vertigo and it really does a lot the it's a case of the world of the characters 
kind of being inspired in the same vein as the world and the movie that they're watching uh, because of the fact that Malin Stowe's characters basically dyed her hair blonde. It's kind of like what Jimmy Stewart is doing with uh, Kim Novak in Vertigo. And it's just really a lovely scene. It was shortly before uh, Vertigo had its big 1996 reissue where... Uh, it basically was fully restored at the time in a way that made sure that it was lasting. And that's a big part of where the critical reevaluation of uh, Vertigo started with uh, some of the critics who may have dismissed it earlier. This is one I need to go back and rewatch. So I have not seen 12 Monkeys since the DVD released. Uh, I... <laughs> Bought the Arrow, I think 4K, it might be Blu-ray, but Arrow put out uh, a set recently for 12 Monkeys, and I picked it up, but I haven't gotten the chance to rewatch it yet. I forgot all about a theater scene even being in this movie. Yeah. All right, I'll have to check it out. Number two, I, I was shuffling these until the very last minute. So at one point, this was my number one, and I'll give you my reasoning why my number one took that spot. But yeah, number number two here for me is one of my absolute favorite horror movies altogether. Scream 2 from 1997, the opening scene. Uh, this is directed by Wes Craven, written by Kevin Williamson. It takes place two years after the first film and again follows Sidney Prescott and the other survivors of the Woodsboro Massacre at the fictional Windsor College in Ohio. The opening scene of this movie takes place at a sneak preview of Stab, a movie that is based on the Woodsboro murders that took place in the first Scream film. And the theater in this scene is amazing. There's so much fanfare for this film. Moviegoers are wearing Ghostface costumes, and there's a ton of merchandise and decorations based on Ghostface around the theater that the uh, that the studio has provided. Uh, there's this. I don't know how long it's been since you've seen Scream Two, but there's this giant knife that is animatronic stabbing downward on the theater facade. It must have cost like thousands of dollars for that studio to put that up. It's insane. It's like something that would never happen in real life, but it just certainly adds an ambiance to this. Uh, so we start off at this theater and Maureen, who's played by Jada Pinkett, and then this guy Phil, played by Omar Epps, they're two college students attending the premiere because Phil wants to go. And they have a very Kevin Williamson, Dawson's Creek-ish conversation out front. Like a meta argument about race and horror movies, Sandra Bullock films, all kinds of stuff. I hate scary movies. I should be studying. You know I got a bio. Baby, did I mention that these tickets are free? Free. Sandra Bullock is playing right down the street. Nobody want to pay seven fifty to see some Sandra Bullock shit? That she naked. Oh, but you will sit through a movie called Stab. Adrenaline Marine. Mm -hmm. It's good to be scared. It's primal, you know what I'm saying? No, I'm gonna tell you what it is, okay? What? It's a dumbass white movie about some dumbass white girls <laughs> getting their white asses cut the fuck up, okay? <laughs> yeah, I suppose Sandra Bullock is Miss Ethnicity, right? Well, no, all I'm saying is that the horror 
are genre's historical for excluding the African-American element. Well, how you get your PhD in black cinema, Sister Soldier? Listen, I read my entertainment weekly, okay? I know my shit. Yeah, Maureen. I read my black beat, too, homie. Tonight, we're gonna have an all-black movie, all-black cast, all-black wardrobe, black uh, eyes, everything, black eyed peas, the black cats you give me it is important because how do you one up the surprise of Drew Barrymore getting killed in the first scene of the first film? Well, in Scream 2, he killed two recognizable actors straight up right away. Um, as the film starts up, we see Heather Graham playing the role of Drew Barrymore's character in the first film. And they're watching this recreation of what we just saw a year earlier. And this character, Phil, goes to the bathroom, rookie move in a horror movie, as he gets a knife through the ear in the stall, which came out of nowhere. I remember watching this in the theater in 97. It's like, whoa. And then Ghostface comes back and sits down next to Maureen. Of course, she thinks it's Phil. And when she realizes that it's not Phil, it's too late. And she is stabbed in front of everybody. But because of the studio dressing up this entire theater like Stab... Uh, everybody thinks it's it's part of the show. They think it's part of the studio promotion. And they're laughing. They're throwing popcorn around. And she's trying to call out for help as she's dying. And, uh, man, it, it was just an insane scene when I saw it in theaters. And I think for a uh, movie theater employee like you, the real horror here is thinking how long it would have taken to clean up that theater afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I, I've seen some pretty awful uh, theaters at the end of movies. I mean, you you haven't lived until you've uh, you picked up after Finding Nemo on its opening mm. weekend. Um, that was it. It was funny. I going back to some movie theater memories for for a bit. That one. Uh, I I was I was a manager at this point, but I was going in there to help them clean before the next show because we had. Uh, people waiting, and uh, which is a thing of a bygone era, it feels like. Uh, but, um, you know, it was funny because of the fact that there were so many kid seats and stuff like that. It was in our largest auditorium, and mm. there were so many kids' booster seats and stuff like that uh, out in a, just sprawled out in the uh, <laughs> movie theater. It reminded me of that big shot in Gone with the Wind where you're you're seeing the street filled with wounded wounded soldiers. It's like it reminded me of that moment completely. <laughs> uh Screen Two's on so I I actually last time I saw Screen Two was a few months ago my wife and I went through it because she had been interested in the screen movie. So it's like okay. Uh she's not big into horror, but slashers she can kind of do. And she's she actually enjoyed the Scream movies. Scream 2 is on my list. Awesome. It's funny because of, it's wild because of the fact that in for so many reasons, what happened at that premiere would not be the case now. Like, you wouldn't have a yeah. studio giving out masks. <laughs> like, you just wouldn't. You know, and it's like, the and I mean, that... And that was really, and the whole thing of, and now, like, movie theaters, you have to, you know, you you kind of restrict people being able to wear masks. Even the oh, yeah. superhero movies, it's because of the Aurora shooting in 2012, that, that Dark Knight Rises uh, shooting. 
And, um, you know, so that's for one reason why it would never happen now. But the thing is, it, one of the things that I love about that scene that is so great, and um, it's something that just makes no sense to me, but honestly, as I've, as I've seen kind of like movie theater etiquette take a downward spiral over the past few years, uh, the idea that people would just be going absolutely batshit crazy during oh. a movie <laughs> and like people would not be complaining yeah it's, it's just absurd and uh no that that but that scene is amazing i that was such a great way to that was just such a great way to get back into the world of scream on kevin williamson's and west craven's part it it was such a phenomenal scene, and uh, of course, I would be remiss if I also didn't mention the parody that Scary Movie did of that scene. Oh yeah, and uh, that just takes the idea, the cliched idea of the uh, the obnoxious person just constantly talking through a movie <laughs> to an absurd degree. I love that the movie that they're watching in that case is Shakespeare Love. It's hilarious. Um, but uh, yeah, no, Scream 2 is an excellent choice. It's on my list as well. Uh, yeah, it's 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 a phenomenal choice. And that uh, the bathroom stall scene in Scary Movie is also quite different. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah, that was. <laughs> There, there was so much. I, I, I had so many thoughts after watching that movie. It was just, uh, I'm, I'm not quite sure. I wasn't quite sure what to think about that. But uh, <laughs> no, I, I laughed my ass. But the thing is, I still laughed my ass off that movie. Oh, yeah. It was just like, what the hell? But <laughs> yeah. All right. So originally, Scream Two was going to be my number one, but after painful painful whittling down and rearranging i came to my grand finale here at number 1 because really the whole third act takes place in a theater i don't know if we're going to match up here because you mentioned you know real world and and the movie world kind of mixing and that doesn't take place in my number 1 my number 1 is from one of my favorite films ever from 2009's inglorious bastards Written and directed by Quentin Tarantino. My name is Lieutenant Aldo Rain. And I need me eight soldiers. We're gonna be doing one thing, one thing only. Killing Nazis. Yes, sir! Members of the National Socialist Party conquered Europe in murder, torture, intimidation, and terror. And that's exactly what we're gonna do to them. We will be cruel to the Germans. And through our cruelty, they will know who we are. They will find the evidence of our cruelty in the disemboweled, dismembered, and disfigured bodies their brothers we leave behind us. The German will not be able to help themselves from imagining the cruelty their brothers endured at our hands, and our boot heels, and the edge of our knives. It's about German-occupied France and a young Jewish refugee named Shoshana who witnesses the slaughter of her family by the very evil Colonel Hans Landa. 
And uh, after narrowly escaping with her life, she plots her revenge several years later when German war hero Frederick Zoller takes rapid interest in her and arranges an illustrious movie premiere at the theater she now runs. With the promise of every major Nazi officer, including Hitler himself, in attendance, the event catches the attention of the Bastards, a group of Jewish-American guerrilla soldiers led by Aldo Rain. And as the relentless executioners advance and the conspiring... Shoshana's plans are set in motion. Their paths will cross for a fateful evening that will shake the annals of history. Like I said, the last third of this film is set in the theater, but I really want to talk about the culmination of Shoshana and the Bastards. Everybody in here is watching a propaganda film called Nation's Pride, all about a German sniper and the countless number of opposing soldiers he killed during a standoff. I mean, it's absolutely insane that they're all just cheering for this very repetitive movie just because it is this war propaganda. And if you haven't seen Inglorious Bastards, I would recommend uh, just skipping past this stuff to get to so you can get past it because y- you really owe it to yourself to watch it. Um, although it's been out for quite a quite a few years now, but at one point in this film, the sniper Frederick Zoller yells, "Who wants to send a message to Germany?" At which point, the reel switches to Shoshana in black and white, who says, "I want to send a message to Germany. You are all going to die." As her projectionist lights film stock on fire and the entire theater starts going up in flames. And Shoshana is, is just has this maniacal laugh on screen as panic besets the theater. And uh, man, it's such an amazing scene. You got the bastards from above, Eli Roth and, uh, and company shooting wildly into the crowd. Eventually the screen burns away and you've got Shoshana's crackle projected or her cackle projected rather over this thick smoke from the fire, almost projecting a ghost-like image across the theater, and uh, it's just complete chaos. Uh, it's Like I said, it's one of my favorite movies ever. It might be my favorite movie ever. I think it's a masterpiece, as he, uh, as his character says in the film at one point. I, I do think it is his masterpiece, and that whole third act just mesmerizes me every single time. I can't believe us we got this movie. That is, <laughs> that is an amazing number one. Uh, that I, I, you're absolutely right about that third act. It's been a while since I've seen Inglorious Bastards, which is probably why I forgot it. Um, but yeah, that, that, that ending and just the build up to that ending is just absolutely extraordinary. Uh, yeah, it, it is, it is really Tarantino. It's it's Tarantino working on a completely different level than what you expect from him uh, at the time. I mean, even even now, like the emotional satisfaction from that climax is practically unmatched in his filmography. I mean, I think the only one that might be close is uh, the end of Jackie Brown. It's such a wonderful. It's just such a wonderful uh, building of stakes, as well as um, as felt as well as the 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 way it climaxes, and obviously the way it inverts history in probably one of the most satisfying ways anybody's inverted history in movies. Wow. Okay. So there's there's some big uh, big movies that are not going to be represented on our list. I'm curious as to what your number one is, Brian Scuttle. What do you got? So my number one is uh, actually my 
favorite movie of all time. That's Buster Keaton, Sherlock Jr. So if you are not familiar with Sherlock Jr., basically the story is Buster Keaton is a project Buster Keaton plays a projectionist. And he is also somebody who studies to who quote unquote studies to be a detective in his spare time. And he gets accused of a crime that he did not commit. And so he goes back to his job as a projectionist. He gets a movie on screen and he starts to daydream himself into the movie. And the the reason that this one stands out even more so than something like Last Action Hero, as well as another wonderful film that deals with reality and film uh, combining, which is Woody Allen's wonderful The Purple Rose of Cairo. Uh, which is one of his best films. And I know Woody Allen is a controversial figure, but if you have to see any film of his, he is not in it. And it's one of Mio Farrow's best performances. And it is absolutely delightful. But uh, back to Sherlock Jr. So Buster Keaton basically daydreams himself into the movie. And the movie basically becomes a reflection of what he's going through in his real life. And uh, it's it's such a wonderful piece of invention. And the idea that he did this in the silent era, where we don't have the special effects that we do now, even when Last Action Hero came out, you don't have the special effects. Uh, Buster Keaton is one of the great stuntmen of all time. And he is just an absolutely extraordinary filmmaker. And as he starts to get his character into the film, and it is is just absolutely a delight. And it's one of the reasons that that movie in particular has been a favorite of mine for a long time and is it's it had to be on my list. Listeners, if you have never seen a Buster Keaton movie you got to go check them out. I haven't seen Sherlock Jr. in a really long time, but I recently rewatched The General, and the guy was just a genius. If you've loved anything that like Jackie Chan has done, you just you owe it to yourself to see where it, where it all came from. Yeah, this is a great pick. This was not what I was expecting for your number one. You know, I mean, there there are tons that I I had listed that. I could have picked. I mean, there were there were some <laughs> that was going to pick until I thought about, well, no, I want to do that one. Um, you know, some of mine that we didn't talk about, we didn't talk about an American Werewolf in London. That mm-hmm. amazing scene between uh, David Naughton and Griffin Dunn in the movie theater where David Naughton's basically being haunted by all of the people he's killed. Uh, while this insane porn movie is going on, uh, there's similar to The Blob, there's a scene in Gremlins in movie theater where the Gremlins just create anarchy. Yeah, watching Snow White, right? Yes. Um, there's the remake of Cape Fear with Robert De Niro uh, and his his character harassing Nick Nolte's family in a movie theater. There's the ending of Blazing Saddles, which breaks the fourth wall just absolutely brilliantly. Um, Purple Rose of Cairo, I've already mentioned. 
one that I thought of was, and it's kind of cheap because it's an animated film, but South Park Bigger, Longer, and Uncut, the when the kids go to see the Terrence and Phillip movie. Yep. And just have that amazing transcendent experience that basically kicks off the entire story of the movie. <laughs> uh, I I absolutely love that one. Great song in that scene. Oh, yeah. I ain't even seen why it didn't get nominated for an Oscar, but it totally should have been nominated. But... <laughs> 100%. <laughs> Um, some of the other honorable mentions I had that weren't mentioned, you mentioned the first Gremlins. There's a great one in Gremlins 2 as well, where uh, Hulk Hogan busts into the into the theater to help <laughs> out. Um, there's one that, that, that was the one that I did not include on my list because I had talked about it and mentioned it on another show. Uh, that one, it, it certainly would have made my list had I not. Another one that would have made my list, but I've kind of stopped using it for lists because I used it so much is... The first date between Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone in La La Land. That is just a really great scene. You can see how just enamored he is with her as she sits down. And then as they lean in for the kiss, the reel stops and the movie, uh, there's a problem with the projector. And he, the way he slaps his knee just to kind of say like, damn, I was so close. I think every, every person watching La La Land just felt that. Um, because I had Inglorious Bastards on my list, I didn't want to have two Tarantinos, but I could have added the uh, Sonny Chiba triple feature from True Romance. I've always loved that that scene. Uh, there's a great movie theater scene in The Departed. It's well, I, yeah, mm-hmm. it's a porn theater, but uh, a theater nonetheless. And then one that I didn't see mentioned. I, I always do like a little bit of research. I'll see what other people have chosen on their lists when. Uh, after I've put mine together to make sure I just didn't egregiously forget anything. But none of these had a little scene from a movie called John Tucker must die where, and I rewatched a little bit of the movie for it. But uh, the reason why this one stuck in my head so much is because I watched it with somebody kind of unwillingly. Like I I didn't want to go watch this movie and, and was kind of dragged to see this movie at one point. And I really didn't have a good time with it. But there is a movie theater scene in it that always stuck out to me as really funny. And uh, these, it's this group of girls who are trying to get revenge on this guy, John Tucker. And he is a model, so somebody like takes pictures of him. And then they run an ad in front of the movie for a herpes commercial. And they've inserted his picture. And so all the kids at his school are seeing him uh, in this herpes commercial. And uh, he's like, I, I don't really have herpes. And then on the screen, it's like, he really has herpes. And uh, I always just thought it was, <laughs> I thought it was really funny. Um, any other honorable mentions that you wanted to mention before we recap our lists and get some plugs in? Not really. I mean, I, I think we covered a wide variety. And I mean, yeah, we, to, to your point earlier, like we had nine, nine movies between both of us that we covered. Yeah. And so... That right there is, it it shows the range of topic of choices that this topic can elicit, and uh, yeah, I mean it's it's just a uh, it's it's a wide variety. I mean, you know, it's like I I love the fact that with the exception of one, we had completely different movies, and uh, but you can you can see in. I hope you can hear in our uh, discussions on them why we love these so much. 
Yeah, and we've covered a lot of different genres and a lot of different time periods. We got movies from the 20s all the way up to uh, like last year. Mm-hmm. Just all kinds of, of, of variety here. Let's recap our lists real quick for the listeners, and I will go first. I had at number five, Goodbye Dragon Inn from 2003. At number four, I had the remake of The Blob from 1988. At number three, I or did I say that last one as number three? Anyway, at number three, I had Last Action Heroes intro scene from 1993. At number two, I had the opening of Scream 2 from 1997. And my number one was the really the whole third act of Inglorious Bastards from 2009. So my number five is the uh, movie theater scene with Thor Birch in as a concessionist in Ghost World from 2001. Number four is when Sammy Fableman and his friends are going to see the man who shot Liberty Valance in Steven Spielberg's The Fablemans from 2022. Number three is uh, Terry Gilliam's 12 Monkeys, where Bruce Willis, Willis and Madeline Stowe are find themselves watching Vertigo. Number two is Screen Two, that op- that great opening sequence by Wes, Qua- Wes Craven. And my number one is essentially it's the entire second half of uh, Sherlock Jr. Sher- Buster Keaton Sherlock Jr. It's only a forty-five minute long movie, but it is a wildly inventive movie from nineteen twenty-four. Killer list, Brian, uh, and I got some movies that I need to both uh, watch for the first time and that I need to rewatch. In Twelve Monkeys, The Fablemans, I don't know which one I'm going to watch first, but uh, well, probably Twelve Monkeys since I own it. Brian, where can people find more of you online? So my main hub is www.sonicdashcinema.com. You can find my movie reviews, my uh, blogs, as well as links to my music and the Sonic Cinema podcast. You can also find my fan commentaries. I've got several solo ones, as well as some group ones. And um, you can also find my music at Bandcamp, as well as most places where uh, music is streaming. You can find some of my albums, but Bandcamp is the only place where you can find all of my releases. And this this past year, I uh, released a uh, an original film score last year, and then this year, a compilation of horror inspired pieces, and that is at Bandcamp. And then you can also you can listen to Sonic Cinema podcasts uh, wherever you listen to podcasts, whether it's Apple, Google, Spotify, Good Pods, basically wherever you listen to podcasts, you can listen. And uh, it's we we've had a great run on Sonic Cinema uh, over the past couple of years. I've been really excited with the direction of the podcast recently, and I'm I'm looking forward to continuing it. All right, so go check that out. The links to all of that is going to be in the show notes. So just scroll down and click one. In terms of fan commentaries, is there one that you're most proud of that uh, somebody like me, a big commentary fan, should check out first? The one we did for we we've done a few that I really enjoyed. Uh, we have um, commentaries for Back to the Future and AI artificial intelligence that I think really touch on a lot of ground in those movies. 
Um, I actually did. So I did do a, I did do solo ones for uh, Disney's Fantasia 2000, as well as 2001 Space Odyssey. And the thing that's interesting about the 2001 Space Odyssey one is back in 2010, I actually released an album that I sort of look at as an alternative soundtrack, like my version of a soundtrack to 2001. And it's called Beyond the Infinite. And you can actually listen to, if you sync it up right, you can actually listen to my thoughts on the movie as well as the pieces that I wrote for the movie within the context of the places that they were supposed to be in the movie. And those are all at Sonic Cinema under the uh, commentaries. Awesome. So go check that out. Brian, thanks so much for coming on the show. This is a great topic. Thank you very much, Jason. It was It's such a pleasure to talk to you. Before you head over to your next podcast, do me a favor, rate and review this show wherever you are listening, because getting the word out about Force 5 is the main way that this show grows. Intro and outro bumpers come courtesy of Nate Spears. The top five list bumper was produced by me with music from Audio Binger. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, and go watch some films with great movie theater scenes. Thank you.